This week, the genome of the king of the swingers. The gene for the collagen protein was under positive selection. And this makes total sense because gibbons have modified tendons and flexors that allow them to be such strong climbers. And banishing blindness. Certainly there are several uh, different approaches uh, being tested in clinical trials right now and that's what's uh, causing a lot of this hope and excitement about the possibility of uh, restoring vision. Plus which country produces the most energy from wind, water and sun? The answer might surprise you. This is the Nature Podcast for September the 11th, 2014. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Thea Cunningham. This is the morning song of the gibbon. They mate for life and this is part of the daily duets the male and female perform together. Their duets are only one of their unusual features. They're also exceptional climbers. Their long arms let them swing from tree to tree in their rainforest home at speeds of up to 55 kilometres an hour. All this swinging and singing is interesting to researchers, as other apes don't necessarily share these abilities. Added to all that, gibbons are an important link between other branches of the primate family tree. This week, a team of researchers has sequenced the genome of the northern white-cheeked gibbon, and they've discovered some unique changes in the genome that have given them something to swing about. Ewan Calloway called author Lucia Calbona and began by asking her what the genome reveals about their remarkable tree-climbing skills. What we found is that some genes that uh, can be correlated to that underwent positive selection. One of these genes is TBX5, is a gene that has been uh, found to, to be involved in limb development. And I was really surprised to see and very happy to see was that uh, the gene for the collagen protein was under positive selection. And this makes total sense because gibbons have modified tendons and flexors that allow them to be such strong climbers. We also find some genes involved in cartilage development. So why, I mean, you just told us all these interesting things about gibbons. Why sequence uh, the genome of a gibbon species or several species in this case? So we were really hoping that by looking at the whole genome, we could understand the relationship between uh, the four genera. What we found out is that this is not the case. We just uh, were not able to to resolve that. And we think that the reason uh, why is because they diverge from each other very rapidly. In the paper, we talk about almost uh, instantaneous radiation. And when that happens, it's really hard to kind of understand what the order of the divergences. And so we were able to understand and to measure when the divergence happened. We know that it happened around four to five million years ago, but we cannot tell in which order they diverged from each other because it almost happened at the same time. The four diverged at the same time. What caused all these gibbons to radiate at the same time, to speciate at the same time? Because we were able to understand, to measure when this happened, which is about 5 million years ago, we know that at that time, uh, which is a transition between Miocene and Pliocene, there were a lot of biogeographical changes in the, where the gibbons were living, uh, in the Yunnan Plateau. And uh, this created a lot of fragmentation in the forest, which is where the gibbon lives. And when you have that, you start having a geographic isolation that basically causes speciation or 
makes it being uh, a little bit faster. And so we think that the changes in the geography at that time played a very important role in accelerating this divergence. How do gibbons relate to other primates, humans included? They are basically a very important uh, link between the old world monkeys, and those are macaques and baboon, and the great apes. And these are orangutan, uh, or gorilla, chimpanzee, and human. So gibbons are apes and are basically the first primates that lost the tail, if we want to put it in that way. And they're still a part of the um, hominoidae, that is the big superfamily where the human are included. So evolutionary, they're pretty close to human. One other thing that sets gibbons apart from other primates is their chromosomes. Yes, so they have been accumulating chromosomal rearrangements at a very high rate, in an unusually high rate. Can you explain what a chromosomal rearrangement is? I like to describe the, the genome as a landscape with mountains. Point mutations can be compared to the wind erosion, so very slowly they will shape the mountains. And so if you look at the landscape after millions of years, you will see a difference. Chromosomal arrangements are like earthquakes. One event will completely shape the landscape, and you will see it after one generation. So what we found in the Gibbon is that there were a lot of earthquakes, but the rate of the wind erosion, so the point mutation, was very similar to the one in the other apes. Could these chromosomal earthquakes, I really like that term, could they also explain what you were talking about earlier, this really rapid speciation of Gibbon or, or some of their, uh, the fast evolution of, of traits like tree climbing? Yes, they do explain why the radiation was so fast. We, in fact, think, think that it was a combination between the biogeography I was mentioning before and this uh, extreme variation in their karyotype because geographic uh, isolation causes speciation, but chromosomal arrangements cause reproductive isolation. And so we have now two forces, very strong, that are basically pushing speciation. We also need to mention that the gibbons are uh, the, the group of, of apes that have more species than any other group. So we have 19 species. So um, this is a process that has been going on for a long time. Many gibbon species are, are critically endangered. The, the Hainan gibbon, I think, is, is nearly extinct. Can can these genome sequences in any way help their conservation? Absolutely. Uh, now that we have the gibbon genome as a resource, we can go in the wild and try to test uh, what genetic diversity is left in these small populations, like this one where we have only 20 individuals left, and try to put some conservation uh, strategies in place of course, this is not only based on genomics. I mean, there's a lot of politics inv involved. But I think that now we have a tool that can help. Last question. Do you have a favorite gibbon? In the Gibbon Conservation Center, there's a gibbon that's been named after me, Lucia, and is a northern Wachee gibbon, which is the same species that we sequence. And so, so once in a while, I go and visit her in California. <laughs> that's great. That was Lucia Calbona talking to Ewan. Find a related news story and a link to the paper at nature.com slash news. Coming up in the research highlights, the genes behind your coffee buzz and monkey see, monkey do. But first, millions of people across the world are blind. There are many causes, some of which are easily treatable with the right resources. For example, cataracts can be removed with relatively simple surgery. But some forms of blindness are caused by defects in the retina, the light-sensitive part of the back of the eye, and they have no easy cure, yet. Scientists are working on ways to restore sight to the blind, and nature reporter Corrie Locke has written a feature about their efforts. Noah Baker caught up with her. 
there's uh, a lot of excitement now uh, and a lot of hope as well on the horizon for uh, new kinds of treatments and cures for uh, blindness caused by uh, retinal degeneration. Certainly, there are several uh, different approaches uh, being tested in clinical trials right now, and that's what's uh, causing a lot of this hope and excitement about the possibility of uh, restoring vision. And one area that clinical trials are focusing on is is gene therapy. Yes, that's right. Uh, Gene therapy uh, has been tested in the clinic since about uh, 2007 now. Uh, So there's increasing momentum to uh, test gene therapy in more patients. Um, And if all goes well, you know, we could see a gene therapy, you know, approved for clinical use in the next few years. Um, And so that involves restoring vision for people with rare congenital forms of blindness. So people who are born with blindness because of a certain genetic mutation. Uh, So in gene therapy, you're replacing the um, kind of defective gene with uh, a functional copy of the gene. Uh, And by doing so, the aim is to maintain what vision people have left and to even restore uh, some vision in people with, uh, with certain kinds of blindness. The gene therapy approaches currently being tested have had some some really promising results, but there are still some significant limitations to them. Yes, there's one nagging question that the field is wrestling with right now, and that is, you know, even if you are able to repair the gene defect uh, in a certain inherited form of blindness, is that going to be enough to stop the ongoing death of cells in the retina? There's one idea that once cell death has started in the retina, it kind of kicks off a whole series of processes that can lead to the death of further cells, kind of like this domino effect. Um, Even when you repair genetic defects in the retina, that might not be enough because there may be other forces at work in the retina that causes these cells to die off anyway. But it's it's an ongoing uh, discussion and debate in the field about, you know, just what amount of treatment is needed to keep cells alive in the retina, certainly once uh, cell death has started. You mentioned gene therapy, but other approaches are a little bit more sci-fi, you know, the possibility of bionic eyes. Yes, that's really interesting. Uh, The artificial retina or bionic eyes, it does sound a little sci-fi, but in fact, there is already one such device that's been approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Um, It's called the Argus-2, and it was approved in 2013 uh, for a certain form of uh, inherited blindness. Um, And it involves uh, implanting a a small chip into the eye. Uh, And these patients also wear glasses and a portable computer and a little video camera that's mounted on these glasses. Um, And all these pieces work together to provide a very low level of vision to these patients, but it's certainly a lot more vision than what these patients had before. I think many people might consider the eye to be quite a delicate and quite complicated part of the body, perhaps something that's a little bit difficult to work with, with these new experimental approaches, but but, but people are still doing it. Yes, uh, you know, the eye is a really interesting place in the body to be doing these kinds of experiments. Um, You know, you're right, it's you may think of the eye as a, as a delicate organ, but in fact, uh, there are certain features of the eye that make it a really interesting place to uh, test experimental therapies. Um, for example, it's a relatively small and self-contained organ. Um, surgeons can easily operate on it. Uh, it's quite accessible. Um, and it's also easy to uh, focus powerful instruments into the eye to take measurements and see what's actually going on inside the uh, inside the eye and see changes uh, at the back of the eye. 
So with both of these gene therapy and bionic eye approaches, we're not managing to completely reverse blindness? No, certainly not. Uh, We're not talking about complete cures or 100% restoration uh, of vision, at least not not in the first uh, few stages of development here. You know, a good example is this Argus 2, uh, you know, the bionic eye. You know, it's a first-generation product. Uh, it provides some low level of vision, but I talked to some patients who use it, and, they, you know, one person told me that he's not really seeing images. He's just seeing dots of light uh, that correspond to lines of uh, contrast, so he can see the outline of a doorway or you know, lines painted on the road when he's crossing the street. So he's not actually able to see images, but he's able to see uh, well enough to be able to navigate, say, throughout his house or even get to the bus stop near his house. Nature's Curry Lock talking to Noah. Her feature is free to read and you can find it at nature.com slash news. Over at Nature Video, most popular right now is the film about our home supercluster, newly defined and called Laniakea, which means immeasurable heaven. Go to youtube.com slash nature video channel to have your mind blown a little bit by that. Coming up, the world's biggest producer of renewable energy and how they're making so much of it. But first, it's time for the best science from outside nature. It's the research highlights read by Noah Baker. Wild monkeys can learn new things by watching videos of other monkeys, a feat that before now had only been accomplished in the lab. Researchers videotaped captive marmosets getting a treat out of a box. They either had to pop open the lid or pull a drawer. Then they put the same type of box on a tree branch in a Brazilian forest, next to a laptop screening the videos. The marmosets weren't natural learners. Over 100 saw the video and only 12 managed to open the box. But most of those had watched and learned from the clips. Just one clever monkey figured out the trick for himself. Find that research in Biology Letters. Coffee time! The coffee plant makes caffeine using different genes than tea and cacao plants, which suggests caffeine production evolved at least twice in plants. With over 2 billion cups consumed a day, coffee is one of the most important crops on Earth. Researchers in the US sequence the genome of Robusta coffee, which makes about one-third of all coffee, mainly instant varieties. Most of the genes that distinguish coffee from other plants had to do with making caffeine. Caffeine probably evolved not to give humans a wake-up call, but to ward off predators and attract pollinators. Read more in Science. Guess which country generates the most energy from renewable sources? Is it the US with its network of hydroelectric dams? Or Germany with its perks for companies providing green energy? The answer is China. The driving force behind China's amazing economic growth, 10% a year for the last 30 years, is energy. And China believes that fossil fuels just aren't going to be enough on their own to maintain a secure supply of energy into the future. So it's been investing in renewables and now generates a quarter of its energy from wind, water and sun. Industry experts John Matthews and Hao Tan have written about China's green trend in nature. I called John, who's at Macquarie University in Sydney. Most people's vision is of uh, black skies, so coal-burning thermal power stations belching out smoke, factories belching out smoke. And, of course, all of that is true. China has absolutely ruined its environment. 
And so uh, it comes as a surprise when you actually put, uh, put together the words China, energy and renewables. And there are some remarkable stats. I mean, China doesn't do anything by halves, it seems. China's uh, renewables capacity far exceeds that of any other country on the planet. Uh, So we've given uh, a chart in the article where we show that uh, the renewables generating capacity that China has built up until the year uh, 2013 uh, is 378 gigawatts or billion watts. Now that has to be compared with uh, just 172 for the United States, just uh, 84 for Germany, 71 for India. So you can see China by that metric is way out in front. And uh, the plans are to uh, to go well beyond that. And uh, by 2017, for China's just its renewable generating capacity to be more than uh, one uh, more than half a trillion watts, 550 gigawatts. What proportion of of China's energy is um, renewable? Well, look, it's a big ship. Uh, it takes a long time to turn around, uh, and uh, it's around a quarter of China's current uh, electric power system. But what uh, Hao Tan and I do in this article is look at the leading edge, looking at what has just happened over the past 12 months, and particularly in terms of investment. And when you look at that, you see that China has actually invested more in renewables, that is water, wind and solar, than it has in coal-burning fossil thermal uh, fossil fuel, uh, and it shows which way uh, the big ship is, uh, is steering. In the article, you go through a few reasons why China might want to be doing this. Um, one of them is an environmental reason, but the, but the biggie is energy security. How are they managing to do this where other countries have professed the same interest and failed? China is able to uh, to enhance its energy security uh, using renewables for the reason that renewables are manufactured. This is the key point that we're making. They are products of manufacturing. And manufacturing, of course, can be conducted anywhere that uh, countries have the capabilities and the technology to do the manufacturing. They're not constrained by acts of God, as it were, in terms of placing oil supplies or coal deposits or gas supplies in certain parts of the world and not in others. China has, has them uh, scattered over the country. They can locate their wind farms and their uh, solar farms where the conditions are right. But the point is they can manufacture the devices needed anywhere in the country. So they've done what they're so good at doing. They've, they've scaled up this manufacturing process. Um, and in this case, it just happens to be providing renewable energy. And what lessons then can we and elsewhere in the world learn from this? Well, uh, you know, it's fairly obvious that uh, all countries can utilise manufacturing to build uh, energy systems and renewable energy systems uh, in particular. And the more that uh, China expands uh, the market for these and, and the scale of its production, the more through the magic of the learning curve or the experience curve, it drives down costs. And the more the costs come down, the more accessible these energy systems become for other players, notably India or Brazil or Indonesia or other countries. So their capacity or their possibilities for getting, for for energizing their industrialization uh, is enhanced by what uh, China is doing. Are there any downsides of this? I mean, some of China's, one of its best known renewable energy projects, the Three Gorges Dam, supplies millions of homes, but environmentally and, and kind of on a population level, it, it can be seen as pretty disruptive. Yes, extremely disruptive. 
nobody in their right mind would see uh, water as infinitely expandable in the way that wind and, uh, and solar power are. And of course, we've only started to tap the potential of solar power. We've been using photovoltaic cells that uh, directly convert sunlight into power. But more likely, uh, if we take the perspective of, in, say, 10 years' time or 15 years' time, um, the, uh, the main source uh, for, ele for electric power from the sun would be through concentrated solar power, where you're using mirrors and lenses to focus the sun's rays and build up high temperatures, which are then used to produce power. Now, China is, is moving uh, into, that, uh, into that field uh, very, very uh, strongly, and uh, it will probably uh, be a major player. And for those, uh, we see the issue as, uh, as being very much, how much can you manufacture? And you can read more from John Matthews and his colleague Hao Tan on China's Green Drive at nature.com slash nature. Finally this week, it's news time and joining me is Chief News Editor Celeste Beaver. Celeste, big news for the UK that Scotland might be leaving. What sort of effect could that have on science? Yeah, so um, ahead of this historic referendum, which is happening next week on Scottish independence, some scientists are quite worried and others are hopeful. Firstly, how important is Scotland to science? So historically, it's been incredibly important. Um, ever since the Enlightenment, Scotland's been a bit of a powerhouse, pumping out James Clark Maxwell, Alexander Graham Bell, James Watt, Alexander Fleming. But even in recent times, uh, several of the UK's kind of big discoveries were born in Scotland. So Dolly the cloned sheep was created there. And Peter Higgs predicted the existence of the Higgs boson there. So pretty important stuff. And what does it stand to lose if Scotland does gain independence? So even today, Scotland punches above its weight in terms of productivity. So Scottish researchers are unusually productive compared to most other countries in the world, pumping out more publications per researcher. Scotland also does pretty well out of the pooled money in the UK, one of the organisations that funds research pulls research from all the nations of the UK and then redivides it according to merit. And under that system, Scotland gets out a little bit more than it puts in. So a lot of people, a lot of scientists who are worried about a yes vote for Scottish independence are worried about that shortfall and what that might mean for them. And opinion polls are suggesting that could be quite likely. What sort of effect will it have on Scotland in its decision-making power? So another thing that scientists who are in the no or together camp are worried about uh, is Scotland losing clout in, in science decision making. So, for example, if Scotland was to renegotiate membership of the European Space Agency, would it have as big a voice compared to if you know Scottish uh, scientists are on the UK's board? Because these kind of international organisations tend to be a bit of a sort of club where the the countries with the most money end up making all the decisions. And surely it can't be all negative. I mean, what are the benefits um, for Scotland if it did go its own way? So that's true. And um, uh, some scientists are excited by the idea of Scottish independence. They are excited about the idea that Scotland would have more power to spend money on things that are important to Scotland. And they cite the example of the sort of devolution process whereby Scotland's been kind of gradually given some powers that are independent of the United Kingdom over the last couple of decades. 
there is evidence that, you know, they have pioneered new ways of organising researchers, these sort of research pools where um, researchers can collaborate at different institutes within a discipline. And um, they've also pushed for some uh, focus on applied science. So there is some evidence that under this kind of independence light, Scotland has done, Scottish science, sorry, has done pretty well. And so there are people who say, well, why not do more of it? Because maybe we'll just get more benefits. Okay, well, we'll have to wait until next week to see how it fares. And moving from Scotland out to Europa, one of Jupiter's moons, where scientists have discovered plate tectonics. Yeah, which is pretty exciting. Um, We're used to plate tectonics on Earth, but we don't know of many other bodies um, that we think have such a system. It's also exciting because plate tectonics on Earth are thought to be crucial to life gaining a toehold. Having that kind of movement um, mixes things up, mixes nutrients around, provides energy, has all kind of benefits. So um, it's pretty exciting to find some distant body that also has that system. So this story joins another story recently, the discovery of water plumes on Europa. Is this really going to shift the attention away from somewhere like Mars to Europa? So, yeah, that's right. Um, This is Europa's pretty quickly shaping up to be one of the hottest destinations in our solar system. It was only last December that scientists first reported these plumes of water spurting out of its south pole, um, which was quite a surprise. Uh, and and also kind of adds to this intrigue about could life be there if there's liquid water. And there's been a bit of a debate brewing. Some planetary scientists are, feel that Mars gets too much attention and too much funding and that we should be looking at some of these more exotic places like Europa in the solar system. So question is, when are we going to go? Well, that is something that planetary scientists, particularly in the US, are hashing out right now and this recent discovery of plate tectonics will definitely strengthen the argument for a mission so there isn't a definite mission planned um, but there is a sort of mission design Uh, it's called the Europa Clipper Um, unfortunately it's budgeted at two billion dollars which may be a little bit too expensive and this is partly because so many people want to find out so many different things about Europa that a lot of different instruments have been tacked onto this uh, Europa Clipper concept. At $2 billion, that's a lot of money. How's this gone down with NASA? NASA is a little spooked by the cost. And so they, at the moment, have called, have made a call out for ideas that would run at just a billion dollars, which is a bit of a disappointment to the scientists who kind of have designed this um, Clipper mission and done their best to kind of shave down the cost, but really think, you know, there's not much point in going if we don't spend the $2 billion. Thanks, Celeste. Once again, nature.com slash news is the place to be for more. That's all for this week. Next time, Young and Flighty, the effects of age on bird migration. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Thea Cunningham. 